Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Jay. This is Amber. And this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of minding your own business until you're abducted and put onto a world that's covered with glaciers. This week we're talking about the fringeworthy race, the Erders, from the planet Erd, which is a prime. Is that to the left or the right, John? I think it's the right. To the right of Earth Prime in the fringe where the... No, maybe it's a jump to the left. And then a step to the right. Yeah, Step to the right. <laughs> Let's do the time warp. <laughs> it is one of the nearest Prime worlds to Earth Prime. It is one of the worlds that is considered a big supporter of IDET. This is a world which is locked in an ice age. There's a lot of really interesting things about this world that we're going to talk about. First off, this world is a heavier world than the one that is Earth Prime. It has 1.2 gravity, which means that the planet has about 40% more surface area by John's calculation. Yeah. But that's kind of negated by the fact that most of that is covered with ice. So, John, what is the actual livable range that is available on this planet that's an alternate of Earth? Oh, well, I think both me and Paul were looking at the ice sheets. But because of the gravity of the ice, unlike Earth Prime, where the, the maximum was like about Germany in Europe, it's actually probably down into France and in northern Italy. So I, if you're looking at Europe... Uh, the ice sheets are, are down to about, I say, northern northern France into northern Italy. If it has 40% more surface area, does it have more continents? And are the continents in the same shape? Yes, as far as we can tell, yeah. They are very much in the same shape because in the fringe map, it actually identifies small features like islands, which are named according to their correspondence to Earth Prime. So the world is very, very similar in its geography to Earth Prime. It's just bigger. A larger diameter, got 40% more surface area. So you get the same usable land mass as Earth has, but a large part of the northern and southern hemisphere covered by ice cap. Well, actually, the northern hemisphere is the one that's covered mostly in ice cap. We're probably down to Kansas or North America. And in Europe, it's down into France, northern Italy. Troubles the Alps help and hinder the, the ice uh, pretty, uh, a whole lot. Probably no clear land in Siberia. That's probably under ice on this world, where on our world, it was kind of clear a little bit during the ice ages. This is a real heavy ice cap. This is real heavy ice age stuff. Three point. Four, three point five kilometers thick. Where on Earth they would probably be about four, four and a half. Oh yeah. Zowie, that's an awful thick ice cap. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you're in the middle of an ice age. But there's places on this world which are quite livable. 
Northern Africa, probably lush and green here. Yeah, the Mediterranean is still pretty much a good place to be. You can walk from Spain to Africa. No need for a boat. Because so much water is tied up in the ice that the level of the oceans has dropped dramatically. So the Bering Strait would be the Bering Land Bridge like it was 20, 30,000 years ago when all the Asiatic people filtered down through the American... Yeah, but only if you want to cross like thousands of kilometers of bare ice to get to it. Well, I didn't say it was going to be an easy trip. I said it was possible. Big difference there. It'd probably be easier to actually get into boats and sail along the edge of the ice in the, in the ocean. Now, these folks have been transplanted onto this planet for 2,000 years. Is that right? Right. Based on the information in the portals guide, uh, it's actually all, we, we put it all into the D20 version of Fringeworthy because we did up to six nodes plus and minus. It says that, it, that these people were placed onto this world approximately 2,000 years ago, which means that it happened about the end of the first century common era. That means that they really haven't had time to get all over the place. There would be small settlements all over Europe and Asia and Africa. But unless they've had a real good reason, they really haven't. I think the population density would be really low because there's always more land to head off into the other direction with. Do we have any information on what their starting population was? How many did they start off with? Uh, No, we don't. Probably would be a sustainable, you know, a, a nice collection of uh, variants. Very small chance of birth defect. You're talking uh, between 10,000 and 100,000 people. Yeah. And the population is going to double about every 100 years. They found some Germans who they figured, okay, the Romans, you don't need to bother any Romans, so we're just going to move you to this new world. What we have here is what we've referred to in the podcast before as a Commonwealth researcher who got his grant. Yeah. Uh-huh. We have a world where they've taken a population from another world and transplanted it to this world for the purposes of whatever it was that the researcher wanted to do. And I would contend there's probably there were two researchers sharing this planet because what we have here is we have a culture, the Germanic culture, which is being allowed to develop in isolation from all the other cultures that would have been around them like on Earth Prime the Russian and the Holy Roman Empire and all those other ones that had a lot of influence on them. Instead, we just have the Germans, and that's all there is. But then you're putting them on a world that's 1.2 gravity, and that's going to also have an effect. So I have a feeling that there are two researchers, one wanting to see what the long-term effects of people living under a higher gravity would be that were taken from another world, and the second researcher who was looking for more of the sociological, political type changes that might have happened. That has a real negative impact on the size of the human skull. What does? That 1.2 gravities. Unless we want to kind of hand wave it. I don't have any information on that. I have done some research on the biological effects of higher gravity. Have you? Yes, I have. What would that 1.2 Gs, uh, what would be the effect of that? And I am using the standard charts that are uh, for humans uh, on Earth Prime. And we know, according to the description, that they're slightly under five foot. Well, the lowest the chart goes down is five foot two inches, so I'm working from that. So a five foot two inch person with a large frame was had a weight of 138 to 150 pounds. In a 1.2 G environment, this would be 166 to 180 pounds. 
that doesn't say anything about their prenatal development. No, I'm not talking about that yet. As a matter of fact, I'm probably not going to talk about that because we don't have any evidence for that at all. There's no all supposition on that. If this was a six-foot-tall man, then he would have between 164 to 188 pounds large frame on Earth Prime, which in the 1.2G would be 200 to 266. Not a terribly great burden. However, it's a lifetime burden. And as you said, Jay, it would be throughout development. The best thing to do for this researcher would be to go and select people who had genes for shortness and the large frame, people who are already predisposed to be more vigorous at that size. I don't know what effect that would have on their brain development, and I really didn't go there, but I wanted to say, how would we treat this? How would we go and look at this on the long term? If someone is taller, their brain is further away from their heart, and therefore it's harder for the heart to pump blood up to that area. So the shorter they are, the less that's a factor. So by picking people who are very short, that would minimize any kind of a negative neurological effect of the blood flow during development and during the rest of their lives. Mm, Okay. As far as everything else is concerned, the way I looked at it is that the best way of looking at this is to say somebody as being obese instead of being under a higher gravity. What's going to be the effect of that? Because we have a lot of information about the effect of obesity on normal human bodies. So first of all, there's going to be probably a lot of disability in old age due to joint damage, just accidental joint damage that happens as you go through life. You twist the wrong way, an unexpected jar. Higher gravity means that jars are going to be harder and sharper because of the additional acceleration. It's not a lot, but these sort of things build up. Yes. And there's going to be greater instance of joint damage due to stress from the greater weight. Would there be a, a greater likelihood of falling? There would be a slightly greater filter for falling being fatal. Going down a hill or down a flight of stairs at 1.2 Gs, it's just ever so slightly more likely to, to hurt you seriously. Would this affect your center of balance at all? I understand that they're short and are going to be more centered than someone who's taller, but also in regards to their girth as well as their height, would the center of balance and their ability to be as mobile be affected? Well, unless their legs are especially short in comparison to the rest of their body. Isn't your legs the thing that's most affected in in height differences? You'd see a lot of knees and ankle problems. Yeah. No, she's talking about the actual length. See, my wife and I are the same height, but I have a long body and shorter legs, and she has a relatively short body and very long legs. We said is if my son got my torso and her legs, he'd be like seven foot tall. (laughs) That sort of thing can happen, right? But the difference in weight is not something that's going to make or break your life, okay? It's just one of those things you have to get used to. And growing up under the higher G, I'm pretty sure that they would have handled all those weight issues as far as balance and things like that. But you're right. I mean, if, you, if you're if you tottering on the edge, okay, then your reflexes and strength in your body has got to be a little bit better in order to pull yourself back from the brink when you have 1.2 gravity versus 1. Yeah, there, there would be a natural selection for people with a better dexterity, better twitch muscles. Right. So eventually that in 2,000 years, you probably would see that they are, in fact, quick low buggers, right. at least in terms of man dexterity. There would be some evolution over 2,000 years. Granted, evolution usually takes a much longer time, 
but their bodies would adapt even over just two millennia. And if we're assuming that they've been gene selected anyways for being able to adapt to this environment, then it's probably not going to be that much of a difference. However, there will still be some other things, like there'll be a greater instance of diabetes, and that's all due to swelling and, and blood flow, which is going to be affected by this greater gravity. There's going to be a ins greater instance of swelling in the lower limbs. There's cases where soldiers standing in, uh, on a parade field and not allowed to move from standing at, at attention, they literally pass out because the, the hydrostatic pressure in their legs builds up to the point it makes them faint. So this would be a more of an issue. There's definitely going to be a greater incidence of aorta aneurysm and aneurysms in the brain because of the greater blood pressure necessary to pump the blood up to the, the brain in the 1.2 gravity. A lot of this stuff is very realistic and very, and very worth considering for kind of character background purposes. But in terms of actual gameplay, I, I see it kind of as a downer. You've got a very strong character, but they're going to have arthritis and diabetes by the time they're 40s. Have fun. Yeah, it, it could. However, you know, the, the main reason I'm bringing this stuff up is because, you know, uh, some people have questioned their age. The average old age is like 65 versus 80. This is one of the reasons is because they're going to have coronary problems. Mm hmm greater incidence of high blood pressure, stroke, coronary disease. And also the herders like to smoke. So that's going to increase those issues proportionally. We won't see that many old herders, but the old ones will get kind of old. Just not that many of them will live long enough to get old. Right. People in, in the 1700s lived to be in their 80s. There's never been any real change in the maximum age of human beings. It's just that there's a greater proportion of them reaching that age now under modern medicine. So that 65 is kind of like the average lifespan, not that people don't get older and people don't die earlier. Smoking, that sort of implies that some of those herders were dropped in, in the Americas because tobacco only comes from the Americas. Yeah, we don't know. They've had 2,000 years to move around. They may have discovered the Americas, and with no other population there, there may be small cities out there farming tobacco like crazy. And there would also be a greater instance of disease-related blindness. High blood pressure also causes blindness. There was an experiment raising rats under two Gs in a centrifuge. And it turned out those suckers, their hearts were stronger, and they actually lived longer than normal rats. I just posted a link to the research they did for that. Yeah, okay. Well, that's one way of going, or it could happen the way I just suggested. Regardless of research or not, I would think that under greater gravitational forces, not just your heart, but everything would develop stronger. The survivors would be stronger, but it would tend to weak people to begin with. People with a tendency to heart disease, people with a tendency right. towards aneurysms. Yeah. Your average herder probably is a one healthy massive muscle. That's a great theory, but however, things that only happen, they only develop later on in your life, those are not genetically you know, selected out, okay, because you've already produced your children before you start showing these symptoms. Things that kill you in your childhood, you're absolutely right. But things that only affect you in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, there's no evolutionary pressure to get rid of that. Mm. Yeah. I would think that for the next generation, or for the people who did survive and are still thriving, would be able to adjust to that gravity and think of it as nothing but normal. 
I think during their normal working lifespan, there would be no difference. I think you tend to see more of them dying earlier of these diseases, but other than that, I think you might see them being very strong people because they're always carrying that 20% extra. And everything else that they pick up also weighs that 20% extra. So compared to people from a normal 1G world, they'd be really strong. It would be a bad idea to wrestle one. And that basically is carried out by their description. If you look under the racial traits under the D20 version, Mm -hmm. you've got strength of plus two, con of plus one. Now, this is where we might argue dexterity minus one. No, that should be at least plus one or plus two, because things fall faster. Otherwise, they're going to be the fumble fingers. Right. They keep dropping everything. Right. Okay. Intelligence of plus one, wisdom of plus four. Where does the intelligence of plus one come from? You know, I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) Wisdom of plus four, you know, I don't know why that comes from either. Well, it does say that they are good with mechanical engineering, woodworking, and early electrical. So basically, they probably have a very good educational system because their religious system does show it promotes growth in all areas, including technological. That's in the write-up, too. Yeah. So, yeah, they would, they're probably they're just well-trained. Their, their societies are that of, okay, we want everybody to be well-versed in the technology of our people. Uh, just a side note here. I started with a basic population of 100,000. Their current population, uh, back of the envelope, comes out to about 250 million people. Ooh. Okay, that's not too bad for a world. Not bad at all. That's all over the planet, so they're going to be really lightly populated. But because they have 1930s technology, you'll find a few big cities, and you'll find them going everywhere in really nice uh, ships and planes. Oh, yeah, and I think Paul has suggested that the atmosphere is probably a little thicker on this world, which actually is good for flight. I'm going to say it's probably dirigibles and not airplanes. All right, well, let's get back to that after we finish this part right here with the racial trace, okay? One of the weird things here is that they've got a charisma of minus one. Because they tend to patronize every female they get near. Yeah. (laughs) We females also patronize? Or are, are you just saying it's a racial trait in comparison to everybody else? You know, the Earth Primers, yeah. I think that that would tend to be my reason for giving them a minus one charisma is that attitude. Because, yes, I, I have had women who, told, who, who have told me straight to my face that a woman president would be a very bad idea because women are so flighty about things. And I had to go, wait, really? Really? Are you sure that it isn't because these are basically dwarves? Uh... <laughs> And in D&D, dwarves always have a minus one on their charisma? I would think that's for the same reason, except D&D dwarves tend to be irritable and standoffish. They, they don't want you to come and play in their dwarven games. Dwarves are pretty stodgy and stuck in their ways, and even young, they're kind of crotchety. That just seems to be the basic convention with dwarves. We are not crotchy! You'll take that back! <laughs> Do they also stereotypically always have the Scottish accent? No, no. They, nine? Nine? Oh, that's yeah, not Scottish? Yeah, yeah. But it says here, the average earner is home-oriented and driven by a strong work ethic. They stand a little under five feet in height and are extremely stocking in stature and mostly wear beards. I'm sorry, but that's like yelling dwarf at me. Well, yeah, I think we can pretty much assume that this is the fringe-worthy version of the D&D dwarf. Let's just get that out of the... They're all Protestants, too, probably. Do we have to have the argument about whether the women have beards now? Well, it says mostly wear them, so let's assume they don't. 
Now, the other issue is if, if you're using the D20 thing is it's got a level adjustment of plus one. Looking at the math here, we got a total plus like, what, five on the racial traits, on the attributes. I think that's at least a plus two. What do you guys think? I didn't have time to hack this out via Savage Species, which is how uh, it's 3.5 system for mm -hmm. uh, determining level adjustment on races. I think the only reason why they'd have a plus one is because of that high wisdom modifier of plus four. Everything else sort of levels out. It's that wisdom that gives it the bump. The total bonus here is a plus six. Is a total bonus across? Yeah, but you got you got some that are my. You see, you got the charisma minus one. And I think the dex minus one. Also, I'm still not sure where that whiz plus four comes from. I think a more that's the work ethic again. You know, the homespun wisdom type. You know, because they have work at a good religious background. I know a lot of workaholics who work like heck, but don't make good choices about it. Well, okay, um, let's try this. It's it's their their Christian pagan beliefs. They have a strong ethical and moral code, so they would tend to do the right thing. That's where I would see the plus four wisdom coming in. Because I'm looking back at the original at the uh, original rules, they had a plus ten whiz adjustment, and that's enormous. That enormous even for the TriTac rules, yeah. Plus for the uh, for D20 OGL seems a little better. I mean, it's still decent, and that's where I would see where you get the level of Everything else is just a walk. That plus four is about as big as you ever see in the D20 system. That gives you an, almost an automatic bonus for an average character. If I were to rewrite this today, I would kind of not. I would kind of think about knocking that down unless somebody would want to set me on fire about it. Well, the thing is, that plus four wisdom, that means you get a plus two to, let's see, profession skills, uh, listen, and spot. How about a plus two to wisdom and then an automatic gearhead? But it says right above there that they are very good with mechanical systems and early electrical systems. You see, okay, I, I can see that. They're better at being logical. Give them the alertness speed, too, because that's for listen and spot. I'd stick with a plus four. Yeah. Look at their culture. Their form of government is communal and ruled by elders. They sit down and talk and share ideas. Yeah. They get their wisdom communally. They pass down and they listen to their elders. It's all good. Whenever you give bonuses to things like intelligence and wisdom, it's always a big question as to where that comes from. Yeah. And it may be there for game reasons, because if you look at all the other races out there, maybe none of them have a big bonus to wisdom, so they decide to give it to the short, stocky dudes. Well, I was wondering if that really came from an earlier write-up or, or was borrowed from the Dwarven write-up. No, dwarves don't normally get a big bonus on wisdom. No. Okay. Yeah, I think they're really cutting down the bonus to wisdom that was in the original TriTrack rules by bringing it down to a plus four, plus ten to begin with. That, that would be, like, amazing. Oh, here's your justification for their minus one charisma. Grumble. Stay mad. Smoke. Poke into things. Advise. Yeah, if you work on that engine like that, you're going to break it. You gotta do it this way. <laughs> yeah, I can see where that would be antagonizing after a while. All right, let's go back to uh, talking about the world that they're on because we really don't have much information on it other than the fact that it's heavy and, and the things we've been able to deduce. We know that the ice sheet is pretty much covering Germany. This Germanic stock was probably transported to some other location on the world. John, I think you were hypothesizing that the best place to just drop these guys would have been down in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Morocco, according to that vegetation map, 
that Paul found. It's a little bit of green that's listed as tropical grassland. In this surrounded by woodland, I mean, that actually, to me, sounds like it's a great place to live. Probably be a lot more fishing than they would normally get. Atlantic coast of Africa there, they would be able to do some deep sea fishing. They'd develop that deep water sailor mentality that we kind of associate with the Germanic and Northern Europe people. You can walk to the Iberian Peninsula. The Mediterranean is landlocked in this on this world. They've also developed a lot of technology that would allow them to deal with weather issues much better than, than just ordinary people. But, you know, we'd have to go back and really map out when did they start expanding, where did they go to, how did they start expanding. There's a lot of stuff to left to develop on that one. And there's a lot of problems to their development. There are a number of historical things that don't happen. During the Dark Ages, they don't have the Muslims advancing science over in Persia. They don't even go through what we would call a Dark Ages because they don't get invaded by Rome and then have Rome collapse right off their border. Right, but they also don't get that infusion of technology either. Okay, And they don't have a, a renaissance because there's probably not going to be a Black Plague. The, with such low population density, there's, al there's always going to be work. So they'll be living in a kind of chronic renaissance because there's always more work than there are hands. But you're not going to have the population at least initially, to produce the geniuses you need to invent things. Yeah, there's, there's a question of population density, which is why I'm thinking you'd see one or two large cities to squish enough people together to get the interactions we need to develop the technology. There's not enough arable land currently to have large cities or really large populations. There's a giant ice cap in the north, and the southern climes are temperate a temperate band and the and the further south you go it becomes deserts yeah they're clinging to the edge of the mediterranean and they support themselves with large-scale fishing you just shot their tech level in the head they couldn't have developed 1930s tech that's all assuming that they are all from that that they were grabbed from 2000 years ago uh, earth history time if they were grabbed say 300 years ago 400 years ago 500 years ago then it'd be a different different ball of wax yeah, I don't think that's necessary, John, because one of the things that they also didn't have is they didn't have a whole lot of wars. Yeah, that's true. Now, and I know that some people think that wars are a great way to advance technology, but it usually advances, as far as I'm concerned, the wrong kind of technology. Working together as a, a culture, I think, could produce a lot more good things. And, and they have this very tough environment that they have to deal with. And I think that would drive a lot of their innovation, too. Well, yeah, Bruce, also, the main thing, remember, we call this, what, a monoculture? Yeah. Most wars are usually caused by cultural or religious or social differences. If these guys are all on the same page, war is not going to be a real big issue. The technology is not going to advance due to war. Not until they get big enough to have two tribes want to have control of the same resource. But still, they're not going to have the same reasons for wars, therefore less wars, I would think, because you're not going to have the sociological and the ethnic, the religious. If they're all on the same page, you're going to have a lot less reasons to fight. I agree, because with, with a low population and the whole earth out there, having not enough resources here just means you go look for them somewhere else. Do we know if the Sahara is a desert during this period of time, or is it green grassland? was a uh, verdant gr gra uh, grassland, but that was bef that was before a certain time period. Um, right now, I couldn't tell you. There's places out there, like in South America, 
South Africa, heck, Northern Australia. There's this, all this land that, when, of course, when the ice caps melt, will go away. But there's all this wonderful grassland and, and farmable land that's been made, made available by the lower uh, water levels. So maybe they're not in Europe. Maybe they are actually down in South America, South Africa, Southeast Asia, Northern Australia, and that's where they've been sown. There's a book that I have. It's one of my favorite books. It's by, well, unfortunately passed away, Professor Aricia Nunez dos Santos. It is called Atlantis, the Lost Continent. And basically he proposes that Atlantis was in the South China Sea and it disappeared due to the flooding, which means all that area where the South China Sea is between like Malaysia and Australia and Indonesia, all that would be open land since the sea levels would be lower. Uh, Asia, you'd have a lot more land down in the Southern Asia area. India. Yep. Yeah, India, all that area from like India and Malaysia all the way down to Australia and New Guinea and Indonesia, all that, all that would be land, not covered by water. I don't think that would all be one landmass, but I think that uh, you'd have a lot of very nice areas for farming down through there. Wouldn't the lower sea level also explain why they could be in America harvesting tobacco because of the land bridge between Alaska and Russia? That's covered in ice, remember? the ice? How far down do the ice caps come? You said in North America, John, Kansas? Around Kansas. Yeah, see, it would be it would be an ice bridge difference. <laughs> It'd be a very slippery walk. <laughs> Once they developed boats, they could easily just go along that northern ice sheet and just get go all the way over to America. These guys don't all come from the same earth. They come from multiple... Could you get 100,000 people? Why would you need 100,000 people, John? Genetic diversity. Otherwise, you can get a lot of inbreeding at that point. I mean, it's great to have 100,000 people, John, but I don't think that was ever, that's ever been necessary. I mean, there's lots and lots of native tribes in Indonesia and other places like that, where historically they didn't start with 100,000 people. But they're always passing people back and forth. Across you know, several centuries, you're seeing a lot of interchange between the different tribes. I'm pulling that number off of the Toba event, where the, where the human race dropped to almost, dropped to a serious bottleneck. And they estimate the number of survivors at between 40,000 and 100,000 people. And they said, too many fewer than that, and we wouldn't have had the genetic diversity to survive. Every human being on Earth is a closer relative to each other than members of one chimpanzee tribe. We're all really close cousins because we went through that genetic bottleneck. Well, we're hypothesizing this is some social experiment anyways. If that guy wanted to grab 100,000 people from 100,000 Earths that were currently at, at, at CE100 from the, the German area, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, that's very doable. See, back at that point, we still had the big system. And the big system can take a moon from a galaxy far, far away and drop it in your backyard as easily as it can put a hand sandwich you know, on your plate. For him to say, I want to do this, bang, it happens. It's really not an issue about how it, how it could have happened. You know, we're just hypothesizing some of the things it could have done. Is I don't know if there'd be any way of ever telling this either. Molecular biology could tell you. Who placed the Erders there? We're assuming uh, that it was a Commonwealth researcher who was either trying to do a social experiment about taking a cultural group and allowing it to develop in isolation, or it was a biological experiment to see what happens when you take Earth normal gravity people and drop them on a world that has 1.2 gravity. 
they didn't have some other reason in mind, like uh, like make mines over here so we can get that stuff out. Of course, with the big system, you wouldn't need that, would you? Well, hold on. I was going. I was going somewhere with that. These are people who are super high tech. You know, biological modification is very simple for them. Yes, if they wanted to. The big system went down about a thousand years ago. Is that right? Yes. They brought these guys over here. How long are we saying? How many thousands of years ago? Two thousand years ago. There's no reason why they couldn't have been tweaking and modifying and and reinjecting them with new blood every couple of hundred years or whatever, so that. Really, the genetic diversity could be high enough, even with a small amount of people, because they're they're making sure that it is. That's true. It's it's experiment. They maybe every so often coming along and going, "Oops, uh, we'll we'll take care of that. We get some grabs new people, throw them there, and see what happens." Right, <laughs> right, right. So there's so there's always that. I mean, don't don't forget that you know this is a uh, a controlled environment, Peter. It's a big question mark. It just depends on whether those researchers were keeping out their hand in rather than just stepping back and being just observers. It could have gone either way. Right. Yeah, I wonder also, too, if they were – when they grabbed these people, did they grab them in situ? That is, they, did they grab – they found a town of people that were all more or less the right genetic stock. Just grabbed the entire town. Scoop it out of the ground slip, and slap it down. It would help their survival rate. Well, if they were trying to grab people who had the, the genetic attributes they were looking for, then unless there was predominance of that in the town, it would be more to their advantage to cherry pick them from the whatever population there was. But you know, if they said, hey, I, I want to make sure that we maintain the culture, then grabbing an entire town with its elders and its oral traditions isn't a bad idea. Culture is part of the biological heritage of humanity. Humans survive in tribes and with people and elders and devices around them. So you, it, you can't really separate. You know, you can pull a bunch of humans individually out and throw them in a uh, throw them in a field, and they will start working quickly to try to put together a culture because we need that to survive. I wonder if the term Mellorn would actually see that as a separate issue as biology is separate from culture our culture tends to rise from us whenever it gets the chance it seems to be an expression of our of our nature well i mean that would be a thing about nature versus nurture that would be an excellent thing for that argument yes yeah well in that case it's a bunch of babies no i wouldn't do that but anyway someone would have to raise them then meller meller they grow everything else i'm not saying termeller i'm saying commonwealth Okay, so it could be any possible race out there that decides to do this. And all of them have the touchy-feely proclivities of the Tamalorn. You know, a Teutonic Commonwealth culture, basically where Germany took over more or less the world. And they want to prove that, yes, the German race is a superior race. And this is their test bed. You know, one of the ideas here might be to see if a culture that is left alone by itself might prove to advance more quickly than other cultures that are in conflict with each other. That might also have been the reason to do it. Okay, this is the German faction raised in vacuum. Then Pax Romanum is the Latin faction raised in a vacuum. Norlanders is another faction raised in a vacuum. Well, they studied them individually. And Earth Prime is like where they put everything all together and stirred and it's still simmering. You know, we're, we're kind of trying to read between the lines and 
We're actually ignoring a few things because when you say that these people were brought to this world, then I was kind of assuming that that was the, for the creation of a monoculture. It actually does say under the description in the Fringeworthy Manual under the Erders that they are the most advanced of the races of the world. So it doesn't mean that they're all necessarily purebred area Germans, there could be a lot of other races, which actually, if we get to the religion, I'll make a case for that. Actually, look at the languages tells us something. They have Germanic, English, well, that's just German anyway. Slova, they got some Rus in there as well. Old Latin, they got a few Romans as well. And English. Now, I'm going English? Wait a second. Why would the languages stay the same after 2,000 years of development? That doesn't make any sense to me either. Culture changes language, language changes culture. I mean, just look at the English language. In the past 50 years, you know, some of the 1950s, and you were to talk in modern-day slang, they wouldn't understand a lot of what comes out of our mouth. So, yeah, language and culture, they change each other. They'd wind up with a language set of their own. Linguists could trace it back to various roots, but... It would be something you'd treat as its own language now. Germanic means it's a Germanic language. English is just, a, I would say, an offshoot. There's actually a Germanic tribe, the Angles. Angles, yeah. The Slova, they got some Rus as well, which happened to be Norse. Yeah, I'm sure if you go back far enough in the Indo-European language tree, you'll find the base Germanic would be German, Dutch, Flemish, and all that were to spring from. I was listening to a History of English podcast, which is very amusing for that. And yes, there is a proto-Indus language that seems to be the base for all the other languages. And it starts somewhere around the Caspian Basin, if I recall. But it tends to spread out and evolve in different threads. And then the different threads recontact each other and overlap, influence each other, and then spread out again. And you get these really twisty, multi-threaded histories of where languages come from. It's really interesting. But, you know, if you throw a bunch of people down on a world where there's nobody else, you're going to change the entire flow of that. Every step of that history is going to be different because they're going to be meeting different challenges and going off in different ways. Yeah, I think they'd have their own language after 2,000 years. It would be recognizably something that evolved from the Germanic languages and these, those other roots, but it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't stay the same. One reason I think they would have Old Latin, though, it's the Christian religion. They still do their masses in Latin. In 100 CE, they're barely doing masses at all. Vatican II came out in, what, 63? Until then, the Catholics were doing masses all in Latin. There was no other languages until Vatican II and 63 came out. The real uh, heavy Latin base of the church literature and the liturgy, the really sealing of the the ancient church as it was, really didn't happen until about 350 to 400. Before then, it was a much more fluid, up-in-the-air kind of a thing. Although it was recognizable by about 200 CE, it really wasn't that classic cathedral-building Catholic church until about 400 if then. And so pulling a bunch of Christian believers from 100 CE, uh, what you're going to get is people who look and act more like Quakers than what we would call the classic Catholic Church. What we had in the first century was there was the Jewish Christians who tended to stay pretty much down around Jerusalem in those areas. And then you had the Greek Christians, which went up into Asia Minor and further up. 
these weren't Christian groups. These were Christian colonies, mostly Greek. And we uh, happen to know that there were Greek colonies up on the eastern side of Germany, along the Black Sea in that area. It's possible in this particular scenario that one of those colonies could have been a Christian colony. Also, uh, there's another way of going about it, and that is, is that the persecution of Christianity started toward the end of the first century, and the main reason it happened was because Christianity became more and more separated from being Jewish. The Jews were given a pass on having to go to Roman religious ceremonies, engage in their sacrifices and other things which were against the Jewish religion, because they paid a tax, a special tax that made them exempt. The Christians, however, as they were converted to Christianity, they didn't see themselves as being Jewish, so they didn't want to pay the Jewish tax. The Romans are going, hey, wait a second, you don't want to pay the tax, but then you don't want to take part in our religious ceremonies. We don't like you very much. Hmm. Now, if the Christians had got a clue and said, hey, look, fine, we'll pay the tax. Just treat us like you know you treat the Jews and let us do what we want to do and exempt us and you guys keep going, then the Christians could have actually been not oppressed by Rome and would have been able to travel much further and much faster through up into the northern areas. Oh. So this there could have been a lot more Christians in the German population, wherever it is they took them from, because of these of, of a possible Greek Christian colony on the eastern side and Christians just traveling as the apostles did travel through the, the various areas. The Christian cult pays the tax and it spreads farther. The cults in Rome moving north as well, up, up into the uh, Germanic areas as well. The pagan religion of Germany, and by the way, pagan simply means rural in the way it was originally used. Most religions like Christianity and other things actually happen near towns and cities, and the pagan religion was the religion of the woods and the religion of the wilderness. Not that a lot of people didn't follow it. They certainly did. But it had to do with identifying groves and, and certain geographical figures and saying, that's a place of this god, that's a place of that god. They liked to worship Mercury of the Romans' beliefs, but they tended to take their gods and place them in various locations that were grounded physically. And it wasn't so much of a philosophical religion the way Christianity was, you know, with a God in heaven and angels and other things like that. So when all of a sudden this population found itself on another world with no explanation, their pagan religion didn't really have an explanation to help them out here. Mm -mm. But the Christians... They had an answer for these people. We're being tested. It could be a lot of things. This could be the rapture. God has taken us from the evilness of the Roman Empire and placed us here in safekeeping until the time that he returns. This could be God's got a special plan for us, and he's led us out of, you know, through mystical means, out of our own country to a promised land like he did the, the ancient Jews out of Egypt. I mean, there is a lot of things that the Christianity could say, hey, this is what happened, this makes sense. The German people are going to say, okay, that sounds reasonable, because they have nothing in their pagan religion to account for this. Yeah. 
And that would really cement Christianity as the predominant religion of this natal Germanic people. I don't know about, you know, oh my God, we're on this earth. I would think since this is a Commonwealth project, that these people would have chosen to be, well, they probably see themselves as colonists. As, oh, we're going to go to this world and it's for the, the, the scientific advancement of the Commonwealth. I doubt they're going to fall asleep and just wake up and go, where the hell are we? <laughs> we're assuming that they were viewed as participants and not test subjects. And you're assuming that they were at least client worlds at that point because the policy has always been not to reveal the Commonwealth to indigenous people until they've gotten up to the point where they can get at least that client status. Yeah, I doubt that they're going to just sit there and go, oh, we just found this world. They're not clients. Let's just take them. No, I don't think the Commonwealth were quite that phallic-like. They tend to be real ruthless that way sometimes. They do tend to treat living things as tools, and they do tend to treat worlds and entire populations as kind of plaything. Look at the Kijak. The Kijak are the prime example of, oh, science experiment. I, this is someone's science experiment. That's right. Rub it in, speciesist. Wow. They're just alternates. They're, they're, not real, they're not real people. They're just alternates, and we can use them however we want to. We're also assuming this was an empty world. So it wasn't like anybody was watching over this world to begin with. You know, and the Commonwealth is a really big place full of people who don't necessarily always see eye to eye on all things and hold exactly the same moral points of view. I mean, you, you've read, you know, what it takes to be a Commonwealth world. You can have people who are willing to do this sort of thing to other people. Yeah, sad but true. I was trying to take a moral high ground that the Commonwealth, you know, they're trying for the better advancement of all. That would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I think that overall that was true, but I think that there were certainly going to be uh, retrograde pockets here and there. I think you're going to see that phrase, for the greater good, pop up. We need a stronger CLCU, Commonwealth Civil Liberties. Technology may have advanced, but not the ethics. Right, gotcha. Okay. This won't start a whole nother generation of witch hunts, will it? Sure. Could if you ever got out. If it's fun for a game, yeah. When would the key jacket announce to the rest of the Commonwealth? Was that 2,000 years ago? When did it happen? Yeah, when were they announced? They were set aside for a period of time so they could evolve and become a culture and all that good stuff. They said that they were left alone for like 90,000 years. Yeah. But we don't know how long they were in the Commonwealth culture before the war. That's never been established. But that could have been one of the impetuses that someone's saying, well, if they could do that with those crab, reptile, whatever, Dionychus thingies, this try we could go to human stock and see what happens. This could be a, a, someone trying to make uh, their own super soldiers or super whatever, and they go let them sit for 90,000 years and see what came out. I mean, the plan may have been to see what ha- what, we, what we would get with, uh, with using normal stock and letting it grow under this world and see what happens. Or this is an incremental step. So they've raised them from 1G to 1.2. When this develops and adapts, they will take a seed group from this and move it to a 1.5G world until they get up to whatever the desired was, a 3G adapted human or a 4G adapted humanoid. Right. That's why I thought that maybe there were two research projects going on simultaneously. Yeah. You know, one cultural, one science. Yeah. Sounds about right.
<laughs> That's how I think the religion, how they became primarily, as what somebody mentioned, the actual conversion of Christianity didn't occur until the third to the fifth century uh, common era. So the church is conducted in Old Greek and Aramaic, not Latin? Yeah, it would be. They would be. The chances of getting actual Latin speakers and that kind of sampling would be really small. So yeah, you might find uh, mostly Greek speakers. I think the early church was mostly Greek. That depends, Jay. If they were snatched up in whole, like a whole village, if people's libraries books came along, then Latin books came along with them, Latin scrolls. I was just about to have a reaction to the idea of 100 CE books and scrolls surviving, because a lot of them didn't for us. If they have scribes, they have people who write this stuff down and copy. You'd see more Latin and more books and more scrolls closer to the center of the Roman Empire. And it seems like these people were taken from the Germanic frontier. So you wouldn't see the big Roman cities with the Roman infrastructure and libraries and scribes and people who spoke Latin. All the early Bibles were in Greek. As a matter of fact, prior to the King James Version, the pilgrims came over here. They had the Greek Bible. They didn't. The, the pilgrims came over before the King James Bible was done. Their Bible was in Greek. So as Bruce was saying, uh, Greek has permeated the Bible for a very long time. And then that was one of the main books. If you had a book, you Good chance it was a Bible. Those are the ones that got copied the most. In that period of time, in civilized lands, Greek was the working language. Most people would have spoken Greece. Yeah, I think it was called Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because th there was an older version called Linear B, right? Yeah. But again, we're talking a sample that was taken from the Germanic frontier of the Roman Empire. We're talking a Germanic bias to the sample, and they didn't have access to the Greek-speaking culture. They may have snatched up a few Roman traders along the way. There still was trade across the border. Or a couple Roman evangelists. Missionaries. Apostles. Or the odd legion or two, you never know. <laughs> the Erder alphabet is probably Greek and not a Roman one. Yeah. Good luck reading the signs. Uh, remember, we, we you get that for free. You get one of them for free. Yeah, one for free, that's true. They might be speaking Latin for the most part, but everything's written in Greek. Well, if that's the case, you would be getting both of that. Okay. I mean, it's whatever the the cultural language is. You know, you'd get both the written, the written, and what if they were two different languages, you'd still be able to see it. You know, bear in mind that German isn't a homogenous language, so there's variations. You know, between Prussians and Bavarians, and Oberbayern and whatnot, that you could still end up with a population that's fragmented. Oh, trust me, I took three years of high school German, three semesters of college German. Hochdeutsch and Bayer are very different. Bayer, I hate using this analogy, but it's the best way to describe it, how my German teacher, Frau Seismore, said, Bavarian is like hillbilly German. It's very, <laughs> that's what she told me 25 years ago. It, it's just a very slur version of German. Sloppy, I guess, was the way she said it, which tells me what part of Germany she came from. <laughs> I've heard that, going back into Godwinville here, that Hitler had a strong Bavarian accent and was considered a major hillbilly for that. He, he came off as a real S-kicker. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it now. All right, y'all. We's going we's gonna to take over this country. and uh, That's exactly it. Off me to saying, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> He's the George 
Bush. A few years ago, there was actually a controversy about that. Somebody did a biopic of Hitler and gave him a strong American Southern accent for the English language translation of their dialogue, and people, for some reason, objected to that. I, I don't know why. <laughs> He's the German George Bush. Yeah, that's exactly what they were implying. And, and George Bush supporters and Southern supporters and general humans said, hey. Yeah, we're tangenting here, but I'll do a little tangent. In the uh, Burst Angel anime, uh, characters from, from the southern end of, of uh, Japan all have southern accents. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Southern Ouch. Japanese. Yeehaw, yeehaw. Yeah, but anyways, over 2,000 years, I'm sure there'd been a lot of blending of whatever languages were there. And some separation as well, especially if, if they were put in different continents originally. Well, yeah, but also you're going to have those who are together, a pidgin language would form. Yes. As they would learn to have to get along with each other, they did have different... Well, pidgin or creole, and they're two different things. A pidgin is when you have a dominant language and you have to learn it. Creoles, when the languages are more or less at the same level of each other, then you get a Creole language form, yeah, blend for, forming at that point. So it's it's quite possible that you know they 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 got some northern southern. The language they'd come up with after two thousand years wouldn't sound like anything that was still spoken on Earth. Yeah, you'll find root words in two thousand years. Though I'd say a lot of the root words are probably still the same because they're the ones that don't change that much. They'd be identifiable, but it would be hard to track through all the different changes in syntaxes and things. Well, it also depend on how literate a society they were. I don't think the German, at being tribal as they were, were especially literate. So I, I agree that it would probably be a lot of diversion. The Germans at that time were probably, uh, I, I don't want to say nomadic, but they weren't farmers either. They're sort of like semi-nomadic. Some were farming, some weren't. So, yeah, the ones that yeah still went out and hunted and that stuff, yeah, they yeah books, it's just extra weight to carry around. So are you saying that the Erders were herders? <laughs> <laughs> that hurts my brain. Oh, you had to choose oh. those worders, didn't you? <laughs> Uh, let's go on, and since we don't know that much more about this sort of thing, about their history, let's go ahead and let's just check out their page here under the human heavies. According to the biology, we know that they go from 4 foot 7 inches to 5 foot 2 inches, but it also means that they weigh, as I said, probably 150 to 180 pounds, even at that. They have an average lifespan of 58 years. Well, I think that chalks into if they've got 1930s technology. Remember, people didn't live all that long back then as compared to they do now. So you can chalk that up to the tech level. Okay, that's fine too. Yeah. All right. We know they have two sexes. We have the gestation period of 266 days. I didn't do the math on that. Nine, nine months. Oh, that is nine months? Okay. And their survivability is 95%, which is about what you get back in the 1930s. Yeah. Our current survivability in the United States is 99%, and it's about uh, 98, 97 in most of the first world. Once you drop into the second world, it drops down to 95, and it doesn't take a really huge dip until you get way down. That's one of the things they've been seeing is as various parts of the world become more and more urbanized and industrialized, they have a big increase in their uh, infant survival rate. Holy schmendrick. Looking at their sleep cycle, their world has a 20-hour day. Yeah, I just now noticed that myself, John. Sure does. Yep. Well, well, you figure 
if you're taking into account what what did you say 1.4 times larger than earth it's gonna it's gonna have a longer day i mean that i would just think that stands a reason except this day is shorter so that means that it's revolving quite a bit faster oh yeah 20 hours at 24 third but okay i would say though it means the moon's is still the moon is still the same size and the reason I'm saying that is because when the Earth was originally formed, it had like a five-hour day. It took the moons to slow it down to 24 hours. So if it's a bigger world, but same size moon, yeah, it works out. Okay. Yeah, the moon's same size. But it's still a 20-hour day. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Which means these guys actually work longer hours than we do. We get eight hours. So how many weeks do they get then? Well, it's that whole ethic again. They they get the job. They tear it up. Yeah. Oh, man, you're back to a whole nother calendar. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have more days in the year, but the year is still going to be a year in length. I mean, different days, different day names of the week and different n- names for the months. Hold on, wait, you're talking the Germanics? Yeah. yeah. You could conceivably say that most of the days are still named the same because most of our days are Germanic. Yeah, but it's 438 days long is the year then. Nice job on the math there, John. <laughs> 438 days long. Wow. <laughs> that two weeks off a year doesn't sound as good anymore. Yeah. And that winter never ends. <laughs> it's the middle of an ice age. Of course it wouldn't. <laughs> They have six extra days in their calendar they must use for something. Maybe it's holidays or something like that. Like an extra week. Yeah. Or they'd have a couple extra months. Well, John, doesn't the size of the of the planet screw up the lunar calendar, so it's not a 28-day calendar? Yeah, the moon's going to be in a different position, so yeah, it's not going to be a lunar calendar. You're right. It's going to be something different. I don't know. That's something to work on. For those of you who know more science than we do, please work this out for us. It doesn't seem that hard, really. I mean, regardless of whether the months follow the lunar calendar or not, if you look at our months, we have 30 days, 31 days, and one month that's 28 for some reason. So if those six extra days, whatever, just throw them on some months. Some months are longer than others, aren't they? If we assume that the lunar calendar is the same as it, I mean, as far as the cycle is the same as it is on our world, then that would probably be more of the, would tell us how many days they would probably have in a month. And then they would probably just have, they just have more, more days in a month than we do. Because it wouldn't be 28, they'd be like 36, right? And you're forgetting another variable. You're assuming that Erd is the same distance from that sun as Earth Prime is from its sun. We're also kind of assuming that they have 12 months. Actually, it sort of works out. It's 33.6 days. I thought that was more the Julian calendar. We have 12 months because of the lunar cycle, Amber. No, actually, we have 12 months because of the, uh, I believe, the Babylonians. They broke the year into 12, into 12 bits. Well, maybe somebody will do the research to figure out what the ancient Germans used as a calendar and figure out how they would have had to adjust it. I am not a big fan of alternate uh, calendars and role-playing games. I mean, it sounds good for a good world building, but oh my god, it's a pain in the butt to keep track of when you're GMing. And a lot of players just won't work that hard at it. And, you know, who can blame them? It's a game. And, and in, in their culture at the time, it didn't really worry about what month it was. They really worried about what season it was. For all we know, their calendar has four seasons. 
I'm sure it has four seasons. Yeah, but but no months, but no months, just seasons. We also don't know if their seasons are the same. I mean, because their world is heavier. Yeah, because they could have dry season. They could have a rainy season. They could have, I don't know, mating season. Do they have a mating season? That's spring. Muddy season. We're making the assumption that this Earth is very much like our Earth, except it's bigger. Yeah, that a bigger Earth would put the moon in a different place, and it would tend to orbit at a, at a different speed, so it would move through the constellations a little bit different. I would still think that the seasons would go uh, in, in the same periods of the year you know, that they do now. Depending upon where you were on the world would determine whether it was a rainy season or not. They work between the sol- between the equinoxes and the solstice, which were very important to a lot of pagan religions. So maybe that's their guide to what time of year it is. We're only a couple of days from the summer solstice here, too. I, I, I appreciate that. Hotter and longer days. I like them. Oh, yeah. They definitely be hotter long days because the air is thicker. Therefore, it can actually hold more moisture as well. So even more humid when it gets humid. Except we're in the middle of an ice age. Yeah, it's, I would it's think still get humid. farther away from the sun if, if this ice age has been going now for 2,000 years. Actually, not necessarily because with a larger world, you get more, you get more volca- active volcanoes, more dust in the air. That could cause a glaciation. Nuclear winter. Yes. Okay. I think they call that a volcanic winter. Yeah. The, the general term, same thing, where ash in the air, one thing or another causes temperatures to drop. Oh, yeah. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. This is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction. No derivatives. And sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts. Cause we're some bad mothers. This is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.